Welcome to the Queen Trail Podcast. There are three different types of radiation, alpha, beta, and gamma. What does this technology do? It's like, well, what can you do with electricity? I just survived 30 years HIV positive. I'm certainly not going to let a little thing like a brain tumor derail me. When I got to 29 pounds, I was so tired, I just collapsed. Everything always goes back to being grounded and centered. It's a mecca for cycling, for sure. Struggle is the neutralizing force. And I said, there it is. This is the right family. I'm, I got like cold chills. And it's one lone oak tree right in the middle of the trail. It's beautiful. Hey everyone, I hope you've had a great week since the last time that we got together. Please join me and my dear friend Chris Sullivan this week. He's a deep thinker, writer, photographer, humanitarian, a truth seeker, a steward to the planet, and an absolute treasure. He's a former business analyst with degrees in philosophy, history, and education. And he became a brand new grandfather this year. We'll be talking about that, travel, adoption, divorce, building a family, fears, or personal experiences, as Chris prefers to refer to them. And the process of gaining awareness of our reactions to various stimuli, especially those that take us out of our comfort zone, so that we can recognize them as objectively as possible to process and overcome them, or to come to a peaceable acceptance of them, so they don't remain constant roadblocks in our progress through life. This first of a two-part talk is about dealing with life's challenges integrating experiences and finding meaning, strength, and perseverance from hardships. In many ways, this talk is just about life. It's endless progression of troughs and peaks and the realization that nothing is final. Life is an immersive ride that's meant to be experienced fully in all of its variations. Life is hard, but somehow manages to be wonderful at the same time or redeem itself shortly thereafter. It's a teacher and sometimes even an angel. And that's never more apparent than when its students, us, talk about, share and explore our situations and find the common and relatable thread among it all. We are not alone in our experiences. So grab a cuppa and join Chris Sullivan and I on this intimate, sometimes difficult, but overall exciting exploration and examination of life. I have to say coming in the door here, I'm nervous. I'm not, Are you? I'm not sure why. I have an anxiety that you think I'm more interesting than I am. Oh, you are incredibly interesting. I've thought that since we met. You've just got such an interesting perspective on life. Just such a deep thinker. I can see, you know, all those gears turning when you're looking at things. The perspective that you have with photography, your writing, all the stuff that you do. I, one of the things that I've really found in talking to my friends for this podcast is that nobody ever thinks that they're nearly as interesting as they are. 
everybody is just kind of moving through life, doing what they do. And I'm thinking, wow, you know, this is so next level. This is really incredible what they're doing and so amazing. And when you're doing it, you just think, well, this is just what I do. There's nothing special about it, but it is. Yeah, I have heard that most artists feel like they are imposters, that someday somebody's going to figure them out and it's all over at that point. I do that all the time. Yeah, I used to do... A, uh, a column from my church that was called Star of the Week. And once a week, I would identify a child in my church who was designated Star of the Week. And I would talk to the parent for you know, anywhere between 20 minutes and an hour about the child. I encountered that too, that typically the parent was dismissive of, of even her own child, but it was the child was more interesting than she thought. And it was also typical in those conversations that I would have a regular set of questions. And at the very end, I would say, was well, there anything else? And they would typically say no. And then they'd say, oh, oh, yeah, there's one more thing. And at that point, they'd lay out the most fascinating thing they'd said all day. I don't, I don't know what that means, but the last thoughts are often the right place to start. They are. I've noticed that when I'm getting ready to leave somebody's home, dinner, whatever it might be, or I'm getting ready to end a conversation, that's when all the interesting questions and facts and observations come up. It's always at the very end. So we can pretend that we just sped through a really long conversation and we're at the end of it and can't wait to get all of this out because it might not come out ever. (laughs) Well, I'm in your hands, Sue. Well, I sent you this long list of questions and it's not exhaustive by any means. It was just kind of, you know, things that I was able to put together really quick off the top of my head. And it's a lot. It's a lot. I mean, we've got writing, we've got photography, we've got raising monarchs, travel, becoming a grandfather for the first time. Yes, I read that list. It's not in front of me now, but I was sort of surprised how long it was. It was really long. Well, see, that's because you're very interesting. (laughs) And then I even had, at the end, I said, I don't have questions attached to all of these, but here's all of these other subjects that we could talk about. So do you have a preference? One of the, the... I don't know, embarrassments or the effects of having unrealistic self-esteem is that I'm interested in things that I don't think anybody else is. For example, one of the books that's influenced me most in my life is a book called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. There's a book that introduced the concept of the paradigm to modern American culture. People hadn't thought about it before then. But I have a strong interest in it, not just in the psychology of perception, but cognition and the philosophy around it and how it works, especially with respect to the perception of reality, and in this case, science. And I don't know anybody else in the world who's interested in that. Uh, I'm interested in the resistance to science and the resistance to evolution. Um, I was just in Italy, as you know. Mm-hmm. I found myself in a place that surprised me. I didn't expect it. Uh, oddly enough, I was reading a book about it at the moment. Right next to the Leaning Tower of Pisa is a cathedral. 
And I went in there, and once I was in, I read information about it. And it turned out to be the cathedral where Galileo sat in his pew listening to a fairly boring sermon. And he watched a lamp, of all things, swinging slowly. And he looked at it. I don't know if you've read this bit of history about Galileo or science. I know who he is. I, I don't know if I've read this particular story. He looked at the lamp, and he started timing the swinging of that lamp with his pulse. And if you were going to look at that period of history between, I don't know, 1400 and 1600, and were identifying a moment when modern science begins, it would be when Galileo was sitting in that cathedral watching the chandelier swing back and forth. And I found myself unexpectedly looking at that same where the lamp was, was hanging. And oddly enough, I was reading a book, the title of the book is Longitude, and it was mostly the development of modern clocks, and it had a lengthy description of that moment in modern science. It was Galileo in that cathedral watching the clock swing. So here I was reading this book and finding myself unexpectedly in that cathedral, very near where one of my heroes was sitting and starting modern science. So it was a, a, a magical surprise moment for me that I had in May. That is amazing. Those are the moments that make life worthwhile. Um, I had something similar, but it was much sadder. Mm -hmm. uh, happened to me when we had just gone the day before, I think, to Bechtus Garden, where Mothausen, one of the death camps, and there was a big area in the back where there is a quarry. And we heard about the terrible things that happened to the prisoners there. And it was just a very sad day. And a day or so later, I was just kind of walking around town. I was by myself, actually. There was this little, very, very small chapel, just tiny, in the middle of this field. And for some reason, I was compelled to walk over to it. And there was nobody in there. There were just wooden pews. And all around was this beautiful stained glass. And I turned around and looked at one of them. And there was the quarry steps and prisoners tumbling down those steps, which usually killed them. And Jesus was at the bottom with his arms extended to catch them. And it was just such a deep moment. Uh, just, you know, being somewhere where I had been the day before, that seemed so hopeless. And then a day or so later, being inside of this chapel with this very powerful image. Um, I'm not religious, but it was a very comforting image. It's a little bit different, but it's a little similar to what you were just saying. Yeah, to get it from two unexpected directions at once, you can't ignore it. Yeah. Italy is... Amazing. You took a tour of so much of the countryside. How long were you there? I don't know, 17 days, 18 days. And you took a cooking class? We did. That was a, a high point for me. Mm -hmm. It's a mountain just north of Florence, um, a little vineyard. The, the man ran the vineyard and did the, the work with the wine, and his wife was the chef. So it was also a little restaurant. Uh, oddly enough, she was Brazilian and spoke Portuguese only, but she had a sister there who spoke enough English to be able to make the cooking class happen. And it was, it was fun. And there were only three people, me and Adele and Rosie. And we 
had finished preparing this meal. A couple of other family members joined us, and we just felt like families sitting around a table. How wonderful. What did you prepare? Uh, we made homemade pasta, which we made into a rigatoni. And they added a couple of things to complete the dinner. It felt so homey. Uh, and there was a little tragedy in the midst of it. The, the restaurant seated only four or five tables. And there was a, a memorial. Uh, there was a 17-year-old daughter in the family who had died. It was an accident, and she died with a, another 17-year-old friend. Oh. But in the midst of this celebration was this pool of sadness. So it made it a slightly more complex moment. Poignant. Wow. Yeah. Um, yeah, I could tell from the photographs that I saw that you were all looking rather content and just really enjoying yourselves. That's what those trips are all about. Yep. And I saw that you went to the Ponte Vecchio, so you were in Venice. Oh, yes, the bridge. Uh, yes, we walked across that bridge to go to a little restaurant that a friend of mine had recommended. It's a beautiful place. I have a story about that bridge. It was a study abroad program. We were in Venice for a bit and was chatting with a friend of mine. We all stayed in different hotels because they're very small, mm -hmm. but they were all next to each other. And I ended up at, I guess, a very fancy hotel, which was really nice. <laughs> I couldn't believe the wonderful food that they gave us there. And my friend pulled out these like wasa bread crackers. And he said, they gave us this and a couple of other things. And I, I was really surprised. And as he's talking to me, he opened up the package to show me how hard they were. <laughs> they were basically like uh, wood shavings, you know, that they had <laughs> put together for these crackers. And some of the crackers fell into the water. And we kind of looked over and all of a sudden the water starts quivering on top and then it starts bubbling up like a boiling pot what was happening is that the grand canal is full of carp and all of these carp were making a beeline for those few crumbs that fell in the water and there were so many of them that they were actually piling up on top of each other and you could see the carp coming out of the water wow. just on top of each other's backs and then it all disappeared. I'm sure that the crumbs got eaten. And I thought, that didn't just happen. Let me see your wasa crackers. <laughs> so we spent about five minutes throwing crackers down there and watching this happen over and over again. It was amazing. And I didn't ever want to go in the Grand Canal. Those fish look pretty vicious. <laughs> I, I was surprised at how voracious they were. Yeah, so the crackers provided you entertainment, if not nutrition. Right. <laughs> <laughs> he got the right breakfast for us to be entertained. The pizza over there, the gelato, everything, the architecture, just the whole cultural feel. It is an amazing place. Uh, probably the high point of the whole trip for me was seeing Michelangelo's David. I don't know if you've seen it in person yet. I did. Uh, it is much bigger than I expected it to be. It stands like 14 feet tall, and that's sitting on top of a 10-foot-tall pedestal. And I've seen pictures of it hundreds of times in my life, but being in front of it, I, I, was, I was awed. Like, I've never been struck by art before. I've seen a lot of art, been to a lot of museums, but wow. Seeing that, it really made me feel like that I was in the presence of one of the 
one of the peak expressions of humanity. It was extraordinary. It is an extraordinary sculpture. Just the detail. I think that at eye level is the sandaled feet and perfection of the feet and everything else. Nothing was skipped in detailing that. We saw the Pieta, um, Michelangelo also did while we were there, and they had a whole room of not finished Michelangelo sculptures. So you see the process. I don't know if you went into that room, and I don't remember if it was at the same museum or if it was at another one, but you could see the process where he did a little bit of carving on a big block of marble, and then there would be another one where it was a little bit more advanced, and they set it up that way so that each block was a little bit more advanced, and then at the end was a completed statue. Yeah, in the gallery I saw it, those blocks, and they're called prisoners in this exhibit because they appear to be men trying to escape these blocks of marble. Mm-hmm. There may have been six or eight of them. I saw those guys too. That's a perfect name for them. They do look like they're escaping that. It just makes me think of Michelangelo's quote, or at least one that is attributed to him, which is, I see the angel in the stone and I release it. Um, I wanted to ask you not to get away from from the travel. You said that you like to really think about things at a level that perhaps other people don't. And I love that because I do that too. I love pondering things to the nth degree often. And you have a list on your blog. And on it, flight is not your favorite mode of transportation. I hate it. You hate it so How do you prepare to fly? Because it is not a short flight to Italy. Uh, I can't remember a time I didn't hate flying. People tell me, oh, you know, you're safest in the plane than you are in a car. And I agree, but that's irrelevant to me. Uh, I remember where I am, and that is in a big piece of metal, seven miles off the ground, metal's on fire. I mean, it's the same technology as a lawnmower. You go in the bathroom and I you're sitting in the toilet, you're flying sideways, 700 miles an hour. <laughs> no, it's, it is not. I, I know that airplanes are one of the safest modes of transportation. At the same time, I've walked away from half a dozen car accidents, but I'm not going to walk away from my first airplane accident. Um, so, yes, it scares me. Adele knows that. And I mean, she says you're going to fly at least once a year, hubby. And I agree. I like traveling, but I I am just I'm terrified of flying. Mm-hmm. My friends said, well, take drugs. And I said, well, no, I'm not any safer taking drugs. <laughs> and then I, realized, I, then I realized I'm not any less safe taking drugs. Yeah. So for the last five or ten years, I've taken Xanax just before I fly. And so if the plane goes down, I'm saying, okay, here we go. <laughs> uh, yeah, it relaxes me and it, it makes the flight a lot more tolerable. That's good. I think that sometimes medication is probably the best bet. Uh, Yeah, I have a friend who takes a sleeping pill whenever she goes to Italy. She still has a lot of family there. Um, I think because I grew up flying, you know, my dad owned a Cessna and we would fly to Catalina Island almost every weekend, or we'd go to Santa Paula, we'd go to a lot of places that had municipal airports. And the other thing with that plane, 
And I think about this often. If I were to get in that plane today, would I have been as comfortable? And I think the answer is no, because you grow up and you learn that there's a lot of things in the world that can kill you. (laughs) And so you develop this healthy fear of them. But when you're a kid, everything's exciting and you're not thinking of death. You're just thinking of how cool this is, of experiencing whatever that is. And so the airplane that we owned was an acrobatic plane. It was called a Citabria, which backwards is aerobatic. So there was a joystick and you'd pull that joystick straight back and you could do a roll. My dad would go straight up towards the stratosphere, turn the engine off, then turn the plane straight down towards the earth and go in a death dive and then turn it back on and pull out of it. And we thought that was the greatest thing ever. That was one of our favorite things to do. One of my worst nightmares. Yeah. yeah. I think that because we were very young and he would say, hey, do you want to try this? We'd just say, yeah, you know, that's fun. And so you become accustomed to it. Mm-hmm. And it's just a normal thing as a kid. But I think if I'd never been in a plane at this point in my life and gone into one, I would not want to try that. I would just say, no, please just keep the plane level and get me where I need to get to. So I don't have a fear of flying at all. In fact, I grew up, I think because my dad was really adventurous, um, still is. And, you know, that kind of maybe put him a little bit on the reckless side. I just got to experience a lot of things. I ended up growing up with not very many fears. And then, you know, at a certain point, Uh, Maybe about five years ago, I want to say I developed claustrophobia because I had to go into an MRI. And I've done a lot of things to try to get over that fear. And it makes me really angry that I am afraid of tight spaces (laughs) at this point in my life. Angry? It makes me angry. Yeah, I feel like I should be able to manage it. And it just consumes you. It's really hard to stop it. So I've purposely gone into like an HBOT chamber most recently, which is it's a small tube, you're zippered in there, double zippered, and it's just almost 100% pure oxygen that's going through there. And you're in there for about an hour. I mean, they make it as comfortable as possible, but the idea of being double zippered inside of a tight space, it just puts me into into a state of panic. And then I get mad at the panic. (laughs) But getting mad at the panic does not control it. I have to actually start to logically tell myself there's somebody right out here. They can hear me and I can hear them. Um, there's air circulating in here, the lights are on, you're safe. I have to keep Mm -hmm. repeating these things to finally calm myself down. And then once I get to that point, I'm okay. I don't respond well to the phrase fear of flying. In the word, to describe somebody's response as a phobia, uh, it seems to me that you're denying that person's experience. Um, my fear of flying, a legitimate 
I think, assessment of my current situation, and it does not seem safe to me. Now, it is different from my fear of spiders. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think of that as irrational either. I think of it as a stimulus that my entire body says, okay, lizard brain, you're taking over because you've got the best set of skills here to manage this. My brain stops in the near presence of a spider. I just, I cringe. I just freeze up. And a lot of people call that a phobia, but that to me is a denial of my experience. So I, I don't, I don't use that word much. You know, I like the word irrational that you, you just used. And I think my personal experience, why I get angry is because I think of my phobia as irrational. It, it doesn't correlate with the current situation at any time. So I'm afraid of these tight spaces, but these tight spaces are safe. Mm -hmm. And so I'm recognizing that there's safety there, but that lizard brain is in an all out panic. And it's an all out panic that lizard brain never used to do that. <laughs> So I think that's where my my frustration and irritation and, and anger come from. My resentment, I, I really resent being claustrophobic. Well, the panic probably sits on top of the lizard brain. The lizard brain, and I'm, I'm using that word in a positive way, mm -hmm. is competent. It knows what's going on, and it says, okay, I get this. I've been doing this now for 500 million years, and I'm cool with it. And the lizard brain starts giving you the correct directions. And it's this additional brain, this monkey brain they've got sitting on top of it that's all freaked out because he's lost control. And the lizard brain says, yeah, 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 I'm in control. Be cool. So for myself, anyway, I don't feel re resentment or embarrassment about that. I remember once I was giving a journal workshop to a bunch of teenagers in Haiti. And I was, it was a 20 by 20 room, and there were 15 teenagers and me and, and a friend I was traveling with. And there was a, a spider, and Haiti has awful spiders, in my opinion. <laughs> this particular spider, they're big. They're big. Uh, <laughs> wolf spiders the size of your hand. And oh my God. Yeah, those wolf spiders, you go to swat them with a paper and they yank it out of your hand and catch you back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, this particular spider I was dealing with is not very big, only two or three inches across, but it scuttled from the wall and made a beeline toward me. Oh, and I just seized up. My friend recognized what was going on. He stepped in and just oh, stomped on it. <laughs> okay, thank you. But I, I was so freaked out. That's like a scene out of Indiana Jones where the knight comes with the sword for a sword fight. And he yep. says, oh, never mind. I'm just going to shoot you. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Why did it have to be snakes? Right. <laughs> the only other thing that's like that for me is heights. I find myself on a balcony two or 300 feet off the ground and my whole body clenches up. And I, that's just me being protective of me. So that's fine. It's part mm. of my experience. Yeah, you've made friends with it. Um, your phobia of spiders. Is it all spiders? I mean, if it's a little spider that is hanging out in a corner near the ceiling or something, does that cause the phobia as well? Or do you find that it's actually um, logical to every situation 
of a spider being near you. Uh, again, I'm going to resist your phobia. I'm sorry. I, d- I did use that term. I'm sorry. If I encounter a spider in my house, I'm inclined to get a, a long piece of toilet paper and get the spider to climb onto the toilet paper. And I take it outside and make it go away. Uh, so I'm on top of my act. I just am aware of my responses in the presence of spiders. Mm-hmm. But I get some of that same thing uh, there's a bug that sometimes appears in bathrooms, maybe inch and a half long. It has 20 or 30 or 40 legs on each side, and it's creepy, and it freaks me out, and it's not quite as bad as spiders. They're kind of feathery looking. Those are house centipedes. Exactly. I remember one of the first places we went to when Phoenix came to us was to the local zoo, and one of the exhibits was a, an opportunity to let a tarantula crawl up your arm and on top <laughs> of your head, and I couldn't get 30 feet from it. I was so freaked out by it. And there's little Phoenix says, yeah, yeah, I'll do that. And held out her hand. This spider climbs onto it and climbs onto the top of her head. And I'm over here just having fits. Uh, right. But there was little Phoenix. <laughs> you uh, stopped br- breathing. <laughs> I, I did, but she, she enjoyed it. And there was the zookeeper assigned to this spider. The spider had a name called Rosie. And it was just a, like a hamster to him. Has this been something that you've always had, or did you start noticing the response later on? I don't remember. I don't have child memories of spiders. No, I. it doesn't feel like a recent development, but no, I just have a specific response to them. Mm-hmm. I don't know where I read it or if it's even true or not, I don't know. But I read something about how ninjas manage fear. And when a ninja finds himself or herself in an unsafe situation and they're feeling fearful, the ninja says, here I am feeling fear. And it, it moves perception to a different part of the brain where you begin become objective about yourself and the fear as a, uh, as a simple process that's going on about you, like a, a hiccup. It's just, okay, there's me having hiccup. Well, there's me having fear. So the brain has the ability to allow you to move to physically different locations to your brain and approach your responses with new tools. So yeah, that's what I do. That makes a difference. That's one of the things that I do with, um, you know, when I'm feeling fear of a tight space, reminding myself that it is a fear response and getting myself through it. There's a lot of value to that kind of thinking. I like that ninja approach. Here I am feeling fear. Yeah, there are times when I find myself anxious. I don't know what about, but just nervous and freaked out. And it's not something that interferes with my ability to get through the day, but I I feel it. And when I'm top of my act, I say, okay, I'm going to sit down with a journal and I'm going to list all of the things in my vicinity that could possibly be a threat. And you are actually moving, physically moving to a different part of your brain and say, okay, this part of the brain... Please manage this for me. And you start writing a list. And a, a list is a altogether different response than just being anxious or freaked out. You know, a brain is a set of independent modules that overlap one another. And if you are on top of your game, you can 
intentionally move to a different module and your assessment of threat or, or vulnerability or, or fear, you know, it's different because you're using different tools. And it's a good way of using journals to get a, a new place for yourself that feels safer, but it's no different. It just feels different. Right. You've given it a name. You've given yourself a task. Yep. That does make a difference. When I worked with kids who were high-functioning autistic, a lot of them feel fear. Some of them have very high levels of anxiety. And one of the approaches to that was finding out what the worst case scenario is. So you're feeling this fear. Mm -hmm. What is the outcome of your fear? What is it that you're thinking is going to happen? And working with the child through that to, okay, your dad just left and you're worried that you might not see your dad. Has your dad come back every time that he's left? Yes. So why are you afraid this time? And then, you know, then there's the, I don't know. And I, I think it's, being able to work through that unknown um, when there's just this nebulous idea that hasn't been named, you haven't anchored and solidified what the fear is. As you work through this, you do that. And eventually you come to that worst case scenario, and then you can start working on, let's talk about the likelihood of that happening. What are some more reasonable outcomes? You're actually making your thought tangible, and you're taking the time to think about kind of like your process that you were making that list. You're making a list of here are all the terrible things that could happen. Here are all the things that are likely happening. Yeah, that's very, very mm -hmm. much the same thing. You are obliging the child to use different tools. Even the terms you use were all quantifiable about time and structure and worst possible case and list building. All of those are using a different module of the brain. And yet it gives the person the ability to become, for lack of a better phrase, objective about their feeling and still have the feelings, but perceive it in a slightly bigger picture. Right. Um you just mentioned Phoenix and Rosie as well. And you adopted both of them, right? Yes, Rose from Korea and Phoenix from China. Mm -hmm. And I have an older son too from a previous marriage, my son Kai. Kai. How did you decide to adopt? And did you adopt them at the same time? No, they were at different times, 88 and 99, in fact. Early on in my relationship with Adele, we had what's called a kitchen table conversation. It's a, a name for uh, the kind of conversation where two people are putting all their cards on the table, and it often actually happens at the kitchen table. And Adele and I were very serious about each one, each other, but she had a couple of questions. And the, and the two big questions were that she needed to have a child that she could raise and she needed to belong to a faith community. And she knew that from my experience with Kai was that he had colic and he did not sleep. I was in a marriage that totally sucked and there just weren't very many resources for me. And Adele was afraid that I would say, well, I'm never going to do that again. But she needed to. So she had to know. And Kai was difficult, but that didn't translate to me saying no to another child. And at that point, I was so smitten by Adele that I would have said yes to just about anything. So I said yes to that right away. There's a lot to be smitten with Adele over. She's an amazing person. You're right. She is. 
And she also knew that I had had a fairly hostile relationship to most institutional religions. And she she knew that she wanted to be in a, for lack of a better phrase, a mainline church. And she needed to know that I was willing to do that. And of course, again, I said, yeah, fine. I have no problem with that whatsoever. So we both came into our marriage knowing that our children were going to be part of the event. Um, But she was unable to conceive. And interestingly enough, Adele and I met when we were both 32, and she had given up on ever being able to attract a man to build a life with, which is an indictment of American men, in my opinion. How in God's name did she last on the market as long as she did? But she lasted there long enough to say, okay, I may or may not get that to happen, but I'm going to have a child. And she had begun the process of adopting a child when I met her. And once she and I realized that we had a a future together, she set all that aside. But we picked it all up again when it became apparent to her that she could not conceive. Um, I mean, I would imagine I, you know, I did not have trouble conceiving. um, But I certainly am at the same place, you know, I'm divorced. And I've had the opportunity to date a little bit after that divorce. And I'm at the same place as Adele that I've just come to the conclusion that this might be where I am for the rest of my life without a partner. And I'm completely okay with it. I've just completely accepted it. And I'm having a great time and love my life. But I just wanted to kind of piggyback on what you just said. But I would imagine going through the process of trying to conceive would be really hard mentally and emotionally. More so for Adele than me. I mean, I I had a child. Adele wanted one that was that was ours, and it did not happen. So it was one of the great disappointments in her life for her. Interestingly enough, when I met her, I had recently escaped an awful rebound relationship that was not nearly as bad as the marriage. But when I met Adele, I was living in a small two-bedroom apartment with me and my son, and I was so sick and tired of relating to women. And it's not the women's fault. I was so tired of it, though. I had a a single bed, and I bought two plates and two forks and two spoons and two knives, and I was just done. It was going to just be me and Kai, and I was fine with that. Uh, And then, of course, a month or two later, I meet Adele. But it was very hard for her. We had to shift gears to adoption, which is as good a way of building a family as biologically. Absolutely. But it was not our first choice. So we started with Korea and we got Rosie. It was fabulous. That's wonderful. Yeah. You know, on the flip side, my dad, the pilot, the one that I always talk about, I mean, he's my dad as far as I am concerned. He married my mom when I was eight, I think. They started dating when I was about seven years old. And yeah, it's as good as any other family as far as I'm concerned. You know, I mean, family is what you make it. Yep. Phoenix was a little different story. The success of Rosie prompted Adele to think, uh, I want to do that again. So we first signed up for what's called the Minnesota list. Minnesota keeps a list of children looking for homes. We applied for that. It's a selfish process getting ready for that kind of adoption because the main question they first ask you is, well, what are you willing to do? Um, But weirdly enough, we sat on the Minnesota list for at least six months, maybe eight months, 
and didn't get one single nibble from anybody. I mean, here we are, professional suburban family looking for a child. And we said, well, that's not going to work. And we decided to go international. The one way that we could open up our parameters a little bit when we were looking at the Minnesota list was age. Uh, pretty much the only limitation that we had was that we did not want to bring a child into our house who would compete with Rosie. And Rosie was at about eight at that time, so we thought, oh, nobody older than, say, six or seven, that Rosie would be able to hold her own with, with the new child. When we went to the China program, we didn't close that down. So theoretically, we would have still been interested in a young child, but the Chinese program came back at us with Phoenix, and they told us that she was about three. But at that point, we realized that being 48 years old, we thought maybe a child who was older than three would be a better suit for us. So we went back to the, the Chinese and said, can we put our name back in the hopper? A couple of things are operative here. One was, that unfortunately, the U.S. has just recently accidentally bombed the Chinese embassy in Sarajevo. Oh the Chinese were probably sick to death of entitled Americans, and they said, no, you know, this is it. Take it or leave it. And I think the other thing they, they knew was that they had understated Phoenix's age. She was probably not, in fact, three. She was probably seven. Which is a, as you know, as a, a, a mom, a, a huge difference. Yep. Um, so they probably thought ahead and said, yeah, this is going to go forward. They're going to be happy. The child is going to be covered. They probably understated the child's age to improve her adaptability. So we went to a friend of ours and said, here's where we are. This person had also recently adopted a child. And she said, go for it. And we did. We accepted Phoenix. Her official age was three. And we, we put her in, in daycare. And a week or two after that, the daycare leadership came to us and said, you know, this child is not three. Even without the language, she was running circles around the other three-year-olds. And we decided to put her in school, and the, the school said, well, we need to determine her age exactly. And the, the University of Minnesota had a program that did that, and they said that given her teeth and her, the other bone structures we study, this girl is seven, so we reassigned her a new age. And to do that, they, we had to actually readopt her. Uh, and I don't know if you've ever tried to have a birth certificate amended, but it's... No. People don't do it. But we got it all done, and now Phoenix gave birth to her own child in February mm -hmm. the 19th. And it took us a while to realize that now, for the first time in her life since she was seven years old, she has somebody with her who is related to her. Uh, all of us are used to that, but for a long time she was singular, but here she is now caring for somebody to whom she's related. Wow. She has become such a natural and a good mother. It's like she was born to it. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it's just a delight to watch. That's so wonderful. Yeah. So how does it feel to be a grandfather? Because this is your first grandchild, right? Yes, it is. I don't know if I've ever quite felt older than 17 myself, but I, you know, I, it's, it's, I hardly have words for it. I'm 
Kai is now 47. So he could have given me a grandchild 25 years ago. Mm-hmm. So I'm coming late to this game. Some of my friends have older grandchildren. And here I'm, I'm a grandfather of a four-month-old. I am determined to be an uh, important person in his life. And there's only one way to do that, and that's be there with him. Currently, Phoenix and Des have flexible schedules, and they need regular daycare two days a week, and me and Adele one day a week, and they cover him otherwise. So it's uh, strange to have a whole new person in our world, but we do, and he's a sweet child. Yeah, yeah. Every picture I've seen of him, he just has such a big smile, and it's just such a perfect, beautiful portrait of a family. Um, Before we get too far away from it, I wanted to talk about Phoenix's experience of ending up in a system where she was available for adoption. She kind of had a traumatic experience in China. I, I don't know. Chinese kids, especially girls, come out of China either as newborns or as four or five years old. The the newborns are the parents who know that it's not going to work, and they are sparing themselves and their children as much trauma as they can, and they move quickly to adoption. That is the lucky ones. Uh, Girl infanticide is still a serious problem in China. But the second group are kids who the families try to make work, like a traditional, well, I don't know what traditional even means anymore, but they, they keep the child and, and care for the child as long as they can. I think the trigger for Phoenix's exit from that family was that they had sent her to school and the school refused to accept her. And the parents at that point realized that Phoenix, the very best she could do was probably as a servant or a rice field worker. And they said, no, it'll be painful, but they put her up for adoption. And that she arrived in a good home after that. The hard time for Phoenix was, aside from the separation from her original family, was the orphanage that they put her in. Our impression is that it was under-supervised. We got a sense of how beaten down Phoenix was. On her first night with us, uh, we were staying in a four-star hotel with another family, a mom and a dad adopting another child from the same daycare center. And we were seated at this fabulous uh, buffet of food. And people were serving themselves and piling up food in the... It's hard to tell. There was keen this moment when Phoenix had an empty plate in front of her and she turned away from everybody else. This was her life. I'm sure she was feeling. And Adela became came aware of her. And within 30 seconds, her plate was a foot deep in food. And then it, and she joined the rest of us. But there was that moment when she was accepting her fate as an abandoned child. It was really hard to see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But she got her food. And I don't think I've ever seen one child eat that much food as she did in the next week. Because she had come to us, brittle hair and bandy legs and the hard belly of a starving child. 
and it took weeks or months before she became a well-fed, healthy child, and her appearance changed so much. And her face changed shape, and her body became strong, and her skin became smooth and warm, and a beautiful Chinese brown. Oh. There was that one, that one moment of... I will never forget. I'll probably not be able to tell that story ever without feeling that that pain. Oof. I don't know how you want to use that part of the recording, so I'll use it how you need to, but it was a painful moment. Um, thank you for sharing that. I um I'm getting I yeah, I'm getting emotional myself. Um I think that um I I think that people need to hear these stories because it happens so much more than most of us are aware of. And it is hard to see that, you know, there's a lot of kids out there who need to be adopted, who need to come into families that are going to care for them and love them and build up their self-esteem and their confidence and, um, really provide them with a life that they deserve. Um, with Rosie, was she a baby at the time that you adopted her? Um, Rosie came to us uh, on August 18 of 88. She was born on April 26 of 88. And I don't know if you remember the Seoul Olympics were that summer. Mm-hmm. And North Korea was bashing South Korea for... Uh, they said selling their children, but of course it was not that. The adoption agency in South Korea came to us and said, well, we can throw you back into the mix again and draw a new child or find a, identify a new child uh, later in the year after the Olympics are over. Because if we wait for the Olympics to be over, well, they may not be able to send Rosie out during the Olympics. So it may have been a big delay. So we were presented with a choice of letting Rosie go and receiving a new child. We we chose not to do that. We told them that no one or both of us was going to come to Korea and finish as much as we could. And they said, no, no, don't do that, please. Uh, my brother-in-law worked in Hilton at the time, and he was able to get us a hotel room, which was hard to come by. Because of the Olympics, right? Because of the Olympics and because of all the nasty, the ugly politics North Korea engaged in. Mm-hmm. And I have no idea what the actual process was. But a week later, they called us and said, Rosie is on her way. So it may have made no difference in that we said that one or both of us was coming over. But it may have. I, I don't know. But Rosie arrived a week later on the 18th of August. And she was a much more typical adopted child. She had attachment issues. And uh, I mean, every adopted child somewhere along the line has to confront the reality of the, the mother disposing of her. And that's a really hard idea to deal with, I would imagine. Yes, the worst experience, I am sure, is for the Korean mother. And I am sure that every offering of adoption that a Korean mother does is awful. I remember going to a uh, adoption event where two mothers who had given up their children for adoption to meet adoptive parents. It was a big event. There were 400 people in the audience, and there came a moment when these two women in their 20s spoke to us about the experience. Oh, I'm sorry to be emotional about that. okay. 
We don't have to talk about it. I would go on. Yeah, okay. And there were these two mothers speaking to a large group of people about their experience. They spoke in Korean and the translator spoke to us. But while they were speaking, this room of 400 people was silent. All of us were listening intently. So yeah, the adoption experience is full of love and joy, but it is also a landmine field for all kinds of people. Mm-hmm. And Rosie's uh, experience was rougher than Phoenix's was for whatever reason. Phoenix had a whole lot more of her personality formed. It was better able to adapt to her new world than Rosie was. All Rosie knew was that the people that she had grown up with were gone. And so she had a, a rougher emotional adoption. And it came to the surface for her when she was in her teenage years. But it didn't end for Phoenix either. She had uh, some of the, uh, the same burdens that you know, Seal, and that is being minority and being a woman. And those are compounded and they're worse for adopted kids, I think. I would imagine so. Uh, we, we didn't really get insight into that until Phoenix was maybe 17 or 18. Desmond had invited her to his prom and Phoenix really wanted to go. Uh, I was opposed to her going to the prom, first of all, because we were given all the regular prom expenses, plus airplane tickets and hotel suites. thought, wow, $2,500 for prom? Really? <laughs> right. uh, I was, of course, much more opposed to it than Adele was. She understood better than I did. So Adele and Phoenix flew to Memphis on Friday night. So all day Saturday, uh, Adele got Phoenix ready for the, another story I can't tell about weeping, got ready for the prom and they were all set to go. Phoenix looked at Mom and Adele and said, this is the first time I have felt beautiful. Oh, oh wow. Wow. What a moment. You know, I would think that struggling through that sense of being discarded despite having such encouraging, supportive, loving parents as you and Adele are. That's something that never really completely goes away. And especially having to experience something like that at such a young age and then going through your teenage years, which are not the easiest years with all of the, all of the issues that happen then, um, to have it culminate in a moment where she's able to identify her beauty in such a confident way and on such a special night. It's telling of a lot of the burdens that she carried earlier in life, but I think at the same time, an actual visible step where she was abandoning some of those burdens and embracing the confidence and the support and that encouragement and that motivation that you and Adele had been working consistently to instill in her. And that's just beautiful. Yeah, I feel good about that. But it is painful for me to think that she had lived all those years feeling ugly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she got the triple whammies of a a woman in this man's culture and being a minority and being adopted. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I'm really glad that she got to that moment. I'm really glad that Adele overruled me and said, no, she's going to go to a prom. Uh, And I'm glad that she arrived at that. But 
I know that she continues those struggles all these years later. Mm-hmm. And that's source of grief. Yeah, as much as I am your typical American, I'm a first generation American of Hispanic descent. And this is a very white culture. You know, I grew up when the supermodels became a thing. And so I would look at the TV or I would look through Cosmo magazine or Vogue or whatever fashion magazine I was looking at. Like those images are everywhere. They're on billboards. They're where the magazines are when you're checking out at the grocery store. You're hearing news stories about them. I mean, it's even... It's even much more saturated today, but I remember thinking that I was never going to be white enough. I was never going to be tall enough. I was never going to have those long legs. I wouldn't be skinny enough. I was never going to be this image of beauty that was being portrayed. There just was no way. And one of the things that... I do love that's happening now is the embracing of every body size, every color, every nationality, just embracing that and helping women, especially young girls, because you're so impressionable at that age. You're so impressionable growing up because what's being modeled around you, of course, you want to emulate that. And some of it is impossible. You're never going to change your genetic makeup. That is something that can't be changed. You know, I mean, barring plastic surgery with the results are never guaranteed, you're never going to change what your face looks like, your height, all of those genetic predispositions that you have been born with to fit some of these images. And now you've got people like Lizzo, who is embracing larger bodies, and she's just embracing everything. You've got a lot of different cultures and just looks being presented as normal. And I think that's making a difference, but it's a long way to go to feel that confidence. But I'm really applauding the body positivity movement that is coming out recently, because as somebody who grew up in the 80s and the 90s, and even in the early 2000s, um, you were still seeing this particular image that most people couldn't uphold. It was impossible to to meet that. Uh, you know, and then then you listen to these models who were being upheld as perfection and they have a lot of horror stories and a lot of trauma from upholding those images themselves. So it's not healthy. No. I think it's still with us intensely. Mm-hmm. Um the shame that especially laid on women. I'm sorry to hear that you put up with that too, Sue. Yeah, you know, you wouldn't think it because I am so confident, but it was a struggle. It continues to be a struggle. I try not to let it be. But I think if you talk to any woman, she will tell you that she's got hangups about what is presented as the ideal. And I think the ideal is whoever you are, you know, and I'm embracing that more. But yeah. Yeah, it's definitely there. So I'm glad to hear that she felt beautiful. And I hope that continued to just blossom for her from that point forward. I hope so, too. The irony here is that I think men, certainly for myself, find attractive a lot more different kinds of women than just the supermodels. There's an irony in that. 
uh, I think that there is this standard, but in fact, the standard isn't very operative for a lot of men. Yeah, that's good to hear. I remember talking to one of my male friends and he said, you know, all you girls are always so worried about looking perfect and being skinny enough or thin enough. He said, you know, us guys, we really just don't care. That's almost verbatim. Mm-hmm. But it seems unbelievable to me because of the culture that I grew up in, you know, and that ingrains itself in you. And so it challenges the reality that you either know or you've bought into because it's so ubiquitous. Again, you know, it's everywhere now and social media, you can just scroll through there and there's all of these images coming up of who you should be, what you should do. I've always said that a lot of people go into fields because they need help in those same areas. And I don't think it's a conscious thing. I think it's just something that we naturally gravitate towards. And for me, I was a fitness nutrition coach for years. And I truly believe that I was great at it. I loved it. It was exciting. I loved working with clients. I loved hearing their success stories. And I really felt comfortable letting them know that regardless of what their size was, they were perfect just as they were. And I truly believe that and I continue to believe that. But a lot of the clients that I was getting were coming to me because of health-related reasons and they wanted to get healthier. And part of that was losing the weight that was contributing to some of these problems that they were seeing like diabetes and high blood pressure. So the success stories were really exciting. But I think that because I had bought into this idea that I needed to look a certain way and I have always struggled with keeping my weight at a place where it coincides with this cultural acceptance of what is healthy. Um, I ended up in a field where I would naturally get that help that I needed. So I was working out every day. I was eating really healthfully because I had to, but also it was part of what I was educated in and what I was teaching my clients to do. So it was easy for me. Um, But I do think that these beliefs that are just kind of saturating everybody, they definitely integrate with our perspective of not just the world, but ourselves. And you end up with a lot of unhappy people that you would never know that they were unhappy until they say something like that, you know. I finally feel beautiful. It does seem like there's some progress, but a lot of these things are quite durable. These uh, burdens that we, pointless burdens that we carry. Yeah. Uh, I agree with your friend when he says we just don't care, but guys are also complicated. So I can say, yeah, I do care. And well, we don't care. So it's both are true. And it, it's, it's a big, big, messy world. Mm-hmm. Humans are messy, super messy. <laughs> Um, your brother wrote a book that's called 30 Rooms to Hide In. Yes. So you had this home that you called the Millstone that was a mansion. Yep. And your father was a very respected physician. Yep. Yep. But from the outside, it all looked perfect. But inside, it was really all cracking and falling apart. And yet, speaking of complications... 
despite things falling apart because of your father's disease, it brought you guys closer. It brought the six of you so much more closer and really created this tight-knit siblinghood. And Well, you'd think that trauma or an awful environment would bring us together, but it did not. Of my five brothers, I have a strong relationship with my brother Luke, but I am fairly distant from my other brothers. I am probably more likely to reach out to other brothers than anybody but my brother Luke is. Uh, but no, he, we've never been particularly close. I grew up with what you call upper middle class white privilege. My father was a male clinic doctor, a surgeon. But within our family, the, the years between about 1954 to 1966, we call the hell years because it was awful. Father was a violent drunk. And interestingly enough, when my brother published that book, uh, most of it is collections of diary entries from the people who were close, the brothers and my mom and some other people near to the family. And Luke brought it together. The 30 Rooms to Hide in, I don't, I don't know if you know where the title comes from, but they were, they were, we were hiding from our father. Luke said he got two kinds of responses to the book. One of them was, oh my God, we had no idea that that was going on. I mean, there were six boys and we were doing pretty well in school and we had cars and there was, we lived in a big house. And we had no idea that it was awful inside. And the other response Luke said he got was lots of people saying, oh yeah, that was happening in our house too. Same thing. Which is why Luke's subtitle of that book is something like Drugs and Alcohol and Rock and Roll in the Shadow of the Mail Clinic. Yeah, there were lots and lots of families who were enduring the same things that we were. Chemically dependent families are, are often very much alike. They are, a lot of ways, our family was just straight, straight out of a textbook. Yeah, we had privileges. It was assumed that we were going to go to college and have professional careers. We were white and all the the advantages that come with that. But uh, we also entered into the world with no confidence, with low self-esteem. It took me years to overcome that. I did, and mostly because of some good counseling and the arrival of Adele in my life. Uh, so true, we were privileged, but there were a lot of advantages that we could not have had, that we, that we, sorry, that we didn't have. That was there available to us, but for our father's illness. You've shared some of your mother's poignant, haunting, and heart-wrenching poetry about that time. And she seems like a very strong, talented, and giving woman. And the two of you have formed a very close bond. How did your mother make it through those years? Uh, I am not a fair judge uh, or reliable resource on that because I don't know very many mothers. My mother was an amazing person. She was an, an artist and a writer and had no training. She was completely self-taught. She had two years of college and left college to follow her husband into medical school. And I, it grieves me to think what she could have been had she not been assigned the rough tasks that she had of dealing with her husband and basically raising her six boys by herself. And had she had the privileges of being free to finish school and take art classes or be members of book clubs and stuff like that, who knows what she could have done. I don't know. At the same time, I know you still have had some rough passages yourself, but 
you are probably a much more interesting person because of that. There's a wonderful book out there called The Noonday Demons. It's one of the best books I've ever read about depression. And he writes this big fat book about the experience of being depressed. And towards the end of it, he says, if I had a magic wand, could I have removed that piece from my life? And he says, no, I wouldn't have. I wouldn't today, even if I could, because he knows that that depression or that, that rough childhood, it, if you're lucky, makes you a better person, a more sensitive person, a more empathetic person. You have a lot more to work with in terms of being an artist. So, yeah, and ask yourself, Seal, whether you would magically wish away all of your rough times in your life, uh, because I'm sure it has made you a more complex, more interesting, more capable person. Yeah, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger and I do agree with that it's it's that complexity of struggling with you're not grateful for the experience but you are thankful that you have the skills that the experience has provided and you know when you do go through such rough times um you know my ex-husband was an alcoholic and also abused drugs and i had <laughs> i knew about the alcoholism i thought that had been taken care of but i had no idea about the drugs it didn't become apparent until um there was no way <laughs> <laughs> no way to say that there wasn't a serious, serious problem there. And um, it really makes you examine your perspective. It makes you more aware of how people function. Um, I think that my biggest takeaway from that time period is that you cannot manage other people. Society wants you to think that you should know everything about the people that you live with. You should be able to work through whatever the issues are. Failed marriages often appear as though you did something to create that failure. And sure, there's all of these sayings out there, it takes two to tango and etc, etc. Um, but I think that in the end, what I've learned is that each person is an individual, and each person is very complex. You can't control another person, you cannot help a person who is not interested in helping themselves. And I just feel like a lot of us have been given this fairy tale, you know, you, you get married, you have kids, you get a house and and everything's really happy. But what happens after happily ever after? Yep. And it's a lot of work to keep a marriage together with individuals. You know, you have to recognize that your perspective is not another person's perspective. You know, you just assume that because you're married, you're both seeing the world through the same lens. Mm -hmm. And that is never true. Yep. So I think that was one of my biggest takeaways. And also that what I was being told about me <laughs> was one person's, one angry person's perspective. And it had nothing to do with me. It had to do with what he was going through. And that has served me. I mean, that's one of the things that has served me really well is when I come across disagreeable people, I don't allow their opinion to in any way taint my opinion of myself. Mm -hmm. I 
immediately understand. And that's a skill that I wouldn't have had I not had to deal with this so consistently. But I recognize immediately that's their opinion and it's okay for them to have their own opinion. I'm not going to accept it. It's, it's kind of like looking at luggage. I'm not going to pick up their bags and carry them for them. They get to keep them. Mm-hmm. So it's not, I guess, no pain, no gain. Yep. <laughs> it's, it's a harsh way to, to do it. But, you know, one of the other things that I say all of the time is that, The one thing that's guaranteed in life is that it is not fair. And I think no matter how cake somebody's life is, there's still a lot of unfairness and difficulty in that life. Um, You know, it's just something that you accept. So yeah, you cannot cut those less than ideal or, you know, those very traumatic moments out of your life and still be who you are today. You have to take the good and the bad, integrate it and find the balance and find the lessons and discard, at least try to work as hard as you can to discard things. And you're right, counseling is so important. I know a lot of people don't want to think of going to counseling But if you get a good therapist, if you get somebody that can listen, can offer some advice, can give you some suggestions, give you a new perspective on a situation, it can really help you get through some of those really, really tough patches in life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there there are lessons to learn, of course. But I think there's also, it's like the muscle of your personality. It's not verbal, Is strengthened or weakened or changed by pain, by traumatic situations. I think a whole lot of us is nonverbal. And it's where those those muscle memories that they still work. Like my mother, for example, I don't think ever learned what the effect of her marriage had on her. She has continues to this day to feel like a failure. Um, and she's one of the best educated people I know, but she feels like an idiot. And those are roles you get thrust into in a chemically dependent family. And they are, you know, it's, it's all pre-verbal. We really talked about the girls getting these images of the ideal thrown at them all day long. That's it's pre-verbal. And there's no, in my opinion, there's no defense against that kind of assault. It just hits you. Lessons learned, but it's not, it's more than that. It it changes who you are. And my guess is that you are tougher and more forgiving for having had the experiences that you had. But I think that you and I are two of the lucky ones. A whole lot of people, like my father, end up in suicide. A whole lot of people just go away. They, They retreat. They become small, tight, defensive people. And some of us, touched our way through it and became much more interesting people because of it. Yeah, I think I embrace life a little more tightly now. I'm more willing to go out and experience things. And I love people, you know, I love listening to their perspectives on life and expanding my own through that. And and it wasn't like I got divorced and life was great right away. It takes a really long time to work through some of those things. And, you know, like I was saying earlier, and like you've mentioned a couple of times, they're, they're just scars that you carry with you forever. You know, I think some of these things are never going to go away. I certainly think about them less and less. You integrate them. I think 
something is always working on something else and changing it and molding it. And um, we become, we just, we do become different people. And it's the trick of becoming better people because of it. And that's always fascinated me. I remember when I was younger, seeing how the same situation would affect one person and make them more industrious, make them more empathetic of the world, make them kinder and change them, soften them into really inspiring people. And then the other person would basically give up on life and like you said become smaller and angrier and it's just always fascinated me how could these two people go through that same event and these different outcomes yeah you know I wasn't married at the time I I remember I was quite young even at that time I knew that I wanted to be the person who came out of any situation being stronger for it and being better for it, that if I was going to have to go through anything, I wanted to have as positive of a turn because of it. And I think I, I actually think that I've accomplished that. And, you know, it's really funny, because as a society, and I think really as a world, so really, it's part of humanity, we love survivors, we, we get so excited to hear uh, about somebody who survived a situation, Mm -hmm. but we don't like victims. We tend to mistreat them. It's enigmatic because victims have no respect and they have to somehow pull themselves up by their bootstraps to become survivors, but you're never going to have a survivor without a victim. So I think it's important to put these stories out there that it's hard to go through such situ- like it's hard to live period you know but we have to and life can't exist without the hardships that we have to deal with it's just the way life is yeah there are two kinds of victims there are people who interpret what's going on around them as victimizing them and they feel sorry for themselves but there are in fact people who have been victimized They've been attacked or exploited or used. And those are, I think those are very different. There are people who really, they they did not do anything to bring upon themselves the trial that they find themselves in. And of course, there are multiple ways of handling that, but that's a different kind of victim. We're just so complicated. This is an endless conversation. And as you heard, we will continue it next week, though we will be veering away from these topics toward writing photography and oddly enough, M&Ms and Smurfs. So please come back next week to pick up where we left off. As always, I'll post links about everything that we talked about in the show notes. Please continue to send me your questions and suggestions. I love hearing from you. And don't forget to take a moment to rate this episode. It only takes seconds, but your rating moves this podcast closer to the top of searches so that my friends and I can reach more people. I'm looking forward to sharing more upcoming In the Company of Friends talks with you. So be sure to follow me on the socials and the dot com all at the Queen Trail podcast. That's T-H-E-Q-U-A-I-N-T-R-E-L-L-E podcast. I am Syl Annan, the Queen Trell, and until next time, I wish you passion, grace, 
adventure, discovery, self-acceptance, perseverance, elegance, and beauty.